Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the damaging leak of documents from the Pentagon that originated with the Joint Chiefs of Staff's intelligence arm, J-2, and somehow got into the hands of Russian intelligence, where they were doctored, then distributed to media platforms like Discord and the far-right 4chan, much to the embarrassment of U.S. allies and the demoralization of Ukrainian officials. We will discuss the extent of the damage to Ukraine's military ahead of a planned counteroffensive from the leaks that expose weaknesses in Ukraine's weaponry, air defenses, battalion sizes and readiness. Joining us is Olga Lautman, a non-resident senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy and Analysis, who was also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and the tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations to destabilize global democracies, available at olgalautman.substack.com. Then we'll look into the extent to which there is a pro-Putin network in the Pentagon, given that the former president and current frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination is completely in Putin's pocket. And similarly, in the House, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene and others working to cut aid to Ukraine, along with Fox News' top pro-Putin propagandist, Tucker Carlson and J.D. Vance in the United States Senate. Joining us is Lawrence Korb, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center for Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense from 1981 to 1985 and is the author of A New National Security Strategy in an Age of Terrorists, Tyrants, and Weapons of Mass Destruction. Then, finally, we will look into what it will take to censure, if not impeach, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, whose wife is one of the leading January 6th insurrectionists and the recipient of right-wing dark money. Following the expose by ProPublica of Thomas's ties to a Nazi-loving billionaire and Leonard Leo, who single-handedly has stacked the Supreme Court with six far-right justices, we will speak with Lisa Tucker, a professor of law at Drexel University's Klein School of Law. An expert on the United States Supreme Court, she is a columnist at SCOTUS blog and is the author of numerous biographies about Supreme Court justices and prominent elected officials. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Olga Lautmann, a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who has also been the creator and co-host of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. And she has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations to destabilize global democracies available at olgalautman.substack.com. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olga Lautman. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Olga. And these highly classified Pentagon documents were leaked online. As far as we know, the documents were generated uh, by the Joint Chiefs of Staff Intelligence Arm, known as J-2. Somehow or other, they ended up in Russia. They were altered in Russia, and then they were sent back into, infiltrated back into right-wing social media here in the United States through 4chan and, uh, and Discord. So what's your understanding of how damaging it has been to the Ukrainians? Because it's, it's got to be pretty demoralizing, uh, some of what's in this package, even though it's been manipulated by the Russians. Well, the Ukrainians, from the conversations I've had, are definitely very concerned about this. As far as the contingent, I mean, as far as the counteroffensive plans being leaked, um, you know, there is more than one plan, and Ukrainians uh, have uh, basically several contingencies for the upcoming counteroffensive. But it is extremely worrying that, you know, their greatest ally um, uh, apparently can't secure their documents, and this leak ended up, I mean, over a hundred pages that seems to have been folded up and put in someone's pocket and walked out, ended up, you know, in Russian hands. So it definitely is concerning. And then as far as the spread of the documents, I mean, we've clearly seen Russia didn't even attempt to um, doctor the documents, you know, in a believable way, because you see, you know, how bad the documents were doctored. And they clearly look like they were tampered with. Well, specifically, the documents that had the casualty figures for the Russians saying that they've suffered between 189,000 and 223,000 casualties as of February, including 43,000 killed in action. And meanwhile, Ukraine suffered 124,000 to 131,000 casualties with up to 17,500 killed in action they uh, pretty much flipped those numbers around to make it look as if the Ukrainians were suffering hugely. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, honestly, it was laughable because the way they flipped the numbers, like, when I saw the documents online, I was like, are you kidding? I mean, they didn't even attempt to generate, you know, a better version of it. I mean, they clearly looked doctored and, you know... I mean, well, Russia is known for hacking, doctoring, releasing the hacking emails, 
doctoring them and releasing uh, that, and then, you know, running a whole disinformation operation around it. And, of course, the leaks have been damaging to U.S. allies. The South Koreans have obviously are embarrassed, as are the Israelis, not to mention the Ukrainians. So you're saying, though, Olga, that in terms of compromising uh, information about the readiness of Ukrainian units, it's not going to adversely affect their plans for a counteroffensive? No, absolutely not, because, I mean... Ukrainians, you know, have several uh, plans, depending on the circumstances, every day, you know, things change on the front lines. So, I mean, they definitely have several plans in place. And, you know, if these were leaked and compromised, they still have other plans that they um, contingencies uh, to work with. And also at the same time, they're still waiting for Western, heavy Western equipment to arrive. So, I mean, what was planned in March is not necessarily going to be next month or the following month when they begin their counteroffensive. You know, uh, things will change. Well, appears to indicate, though, is that there could be a pro-Putin network inside the Pentagon we don't know how many people had access to these documents, but their estimates are that, you know, it could be up to a thousand. And you just have to accept the fact that, you know, we have a former president who's completely in Putin's pocket and he's running for president again. You have a pro Putin caucus in the House led by Marjorie Taylor Greene and others. You have a pro Putin caucus in the media with uh, Fox News' Tucker Carlson and others. And you have a pro-Putin caucus in the U.S. Senate with J.D. Vance. So what are the possibilities, do you think, uh, that there is a pro-Putin caucus in the Pentagon? And in this case, it could even be a Russian spy who leaked these documents to the Kremlin. Well, it's 100 percent. I mean, we've seen it, you know, over the past several years. If The only positive that um, came out of Trump was that he exposed all the both white supremacist elements and the pro-Russian elements inside our government. And, I mean, we saw this, you know, coming out of the Pentagon um, during uh, January 6th uh, riots when they, you know, decided not to immediately act and allow the uh, Congress to, you know, be destroyed and, and U.S. to be humiliated on the world stage. And I mean, and we see very publicly from Congress members, from, you know, uh, other agencies, including the recent arrest of the head of the FBI counterintelligence, who was working, you know, with Putin's money bank uh, slash operative uh, Oleg Deripaska. So, I mean, it is extremely concerning and it is even more imperative for the United States to really get a handle of this and clean out all the agencies of, uh, you know, uh, uh, that have people who are working either on behalf of Russia or uh, working in a way to advance Russia's foreign policies and whatnot. And I mean, we see what is coming out of Congress from Marjorie Taylor Greene and the likes and how they carry on and are trying to obstruct, you know, funding for Ukraine. Uh, basically want United States to be isolationist, which is impossible. And, uh, you know, and trying 
to convince and basically repeating all of the Kremlin's propaganda that this is a proxy war, where in fact, we have seen with World War One and Two that if the United States doesn't get involved in the beginning, then we get drawn into a bigger world war and that European security is extremely important for U.S. national security. And if Ukraine falls, we saw recently with, you know, Russia's um, uh, plans to violently overthrow Moldova and Russia's threats to Poland, then, you know, they will continue marching on through Europe. So this is why it is extremely important to stop Russia in Ukraine right now. And for us to root out all the pro-Russian elements inside our government agencies and, um, you know, on, on TV, it would be nice, but we do have, uh, you know, the First Amendment rights. So. Right. But in terms of damage to Ukraine from these leaks, the, some of the leaks uh, expose weaknesses in Ukraine's weapons, its air defenses, the size of its battalions, and the readiness of other uh, units as well. Can those things be fixed before this counteroffensive? Because I'm hearing reports that a lot of the equipment that the U.S. is sending is a lot of it's junk. A lot of it's the, you know the Pentagon is unloading a bunch of used stuff that doesn't necessarily work in order to then replace it with new stuff for themselves. So I don't know the extent to which the the weaponry is is as good as it should be, and two whether it's arriving on time. But obviously these documents expose certain Ukrainian weaknesses, which the Russians clearly must be aware of. Well, uh, the Russians are aware of, and honestly, as you've seen over the past year, Ukrainians aren't exactly hiding their weaknesses either when they ask for weapons and for, um, you know, military systems to protect the skies and for uh, um, fighter jets. And we see Russia's terrorist attacks, um, you know, constantly on civilian infrastructure, including buildings in the middle of the night. So, I mean, the weaknesses are exposed. Um, Ukrainians have held on. They have no choice but to continue because obviously, you know, they stop. They're going to lose their country. So, you know, they may do with what they have. And so far, you know, the West counted out Ukraine last year after, you know, a week or a month that Russia was going to successfully conquer it and overthrow uh, Kiev. And we are now in April and, you know, 10 months later, Russia can't even grab Bakhmut, which is, you know, four, four square mile uh, location town. So Ukrainians are holding out. I mean, the weaknesses obviously are there. Do we want Russia to have this information? Absolutely not. But I mean, they will, you know, continue doing the best with what they have. And hopefully the United States and Europe, you know, because the quicker they send military equipment to Ukraine, the quicker this war will end. No one is in interest except Russia to drag out this war, you know, forever. Everyone else wants this war to end. Ukraine wants it to end, you know, last year. And I'm sure Europe also understands, you know, they don't need to have uh, one of the largest scale invasions since World War II on their soil. So hopefully, you know, with... uh, in the near months, 
U.S. and its allies will send Ukraine everything they need, and hopefully they'll have, you know, send them fighter jets. We already saw Slovakia and Poland take the first step, and and that's it, you know. And, I mean, if we want this war to end, we need to arm Ukraine. But the war won't end as long as, as Putin is around, it would seem, because he's determined to continue it, and he's not exactly necessarily getting the right information about what's really happening because he's in this bubble, this cocoon of paranoia. We've just learned from a defector from his security detail that he's totally paranoid. He has all kinds of fake doubles and doubling, tripling his travel plans and decoys and all of this stuff. So that's I mean, in itself, a terrifying thought that you have this uh, leader with, you know, thousands of nuclear weapons at, at his disposal who's completely paranoid and out of touch. So what do you think is, is going on there? What What is the possibility of either Putin accepting reality, which doesn't seem likely, or being toppled? Well, I mean, we've had this conversation, you know, several times over the past several months, and, you know, Putin is not going to accept reality. Obviously, he will continue. But um, as I told you last year, and, you know, continue to see the same signs, if anything, increasing, that this, uh, you know, his uh, invasion plans of Ukraine failing and each military defeat that Russia experiences causes more and more and more divisions between different factions inside of Russia. So, I mean, Putin at this moment is not in the most secure position because you have, for instance, uh, Prigozhin and his Wagner mercenary group at full war on display with Russia's defense ministry and intelligence services. You've had, you know, an explosion of one of uh, Prigozhin's uh, military bloggers in Prigozhin's cafe um, last week. Uh, in St. Petersburg, um, you had another, you know, recent bombshell recording that dropped of another Prigozhin, Yusuf Prigozhin, who is a Putin lackey and a famous music producer, speaking with an oligarch and basically uh, 35 minutes of cursing out Putin and his regime and how they have destroyed, you know, the future of Russia. You've had the arrest warrant. Um, that was issued for Putin, which basically that arrest warrant decisively ended any future, you know, negotiations and and um, dealings with Russia, because now the head of their state is the wanted fugitive for genocide. And people around Putin are seeing this. And since last year, there have been signs, you know, that the elite around Putin are getting concerned because they see that there's absolutely no way one to win this war. And I mean, every single month that goes by, they have more consequences, you know, occurring inside of Russia, including, you know, this last week, the collapse of the ruble again. And uh, I mean, they're in, a, uh, I think by mid-March, they were in a $3 trillion hole. So you see all these pressures happening. And then I didn't even mention a new war that's brewing between Chechens and uh, the Russian Orthodox nationalists that, you know, are at war because Chechens want to build a a mosque in Moscow 
and the Russian nationalists are threatening to block it, and, you know, the Chechens threaten that they will destroy them. So Putin before was able to keep all these factions in hand, but you see with all these emerging wars and, you know, between different factions that he's losing complete control of the country. And it is going to continue going down into a spiral. And as I said last year, we are seeing really the beginning of uh, the collapse of Russia as we know it. And I mean, you know, it's a matter of time for Putin himself before he uh, faces his end, you know, and it could come sooner rather than later. Well, you mentioned the the bombing in the St. Petersburg Cafe of one of the propagandist um, military bloggers, the ultra-nationalists, the hideous, warmongering, bloodthirsty people that are pushing Putin and and at war with the the Russian Ministry of Defense. It does look like an FSB operation, does it not? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, and I said it that day, and I laughed, I mean, the next day, um, Russia's, uh, you know, uh, anti-terrorism, if that's a joke in itself, force, um, and said that it was, you know, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian secret services with the Balney people. I mean, that's like oil and vinegar um, that planned this operation. And I was like, absolutely not. This is definitely an FSB operation because, for starters, FSB has been taking every step that they can since last November to uh, minimize Prigozhin's influence and to sabotage um, Prigozhin and his mercenary group because they are, you know, were becoming concerned that he was uh, taking the role of a populist leader on the front lines while Putin is, you know, hiding in a bunker and traveling in train cars, uh, armed train cars. Prigozhin is on the front lines. So um, they were extremely concerned. They cut off his recruiting from, you know, prisons to send cannon fodder to the front lines. And Prigozhin, I mean, went as far, he's crossed every single line, including, you know, calling for the prosecution of um, the top defense ministry officials inside of Russia um, for treason. So you could imagine, and then he has this extremely influential arm of, uh, military bloggers and just, you know, a uh, propaganda machine, which we all saw ourselves in the United States because Prigozhin and his um, uh, uh, internet research agency were, uh, you know, indicted, sanctioned for the operations, they were information warfare operations they were conducting during 2016 election. So you could imagine now you have this a military blogger who is, uh, you know, definitely with Prigozhin, who has been extremely critical of defense ministry. And not only that, he criticized Petrushev, their um, uh, National Security Council head. And, uh, you know, we all know Petrushev's history. He was the one who had his fingerprints on blowing up Russian apartment buildings in 99 to put Putin into power. It was an FSB operation. So with all that said, I mean, all signs are that uh, that, that explosion in Prigozhin's cafe of one of Prigozhin's military bloggers was an FSB operation. Mm. Well, just in the last minute, Olga, though, interesting enough, 
you know, there's a movie that got the Academy Award, All, All's Quiet on the Western Front. As it happens, all is quiet across off the front now. There's a peculiar lull in the fighting. It's almost like the Russians are either stopped fighting or they're preparing defences for a counteroffensive. What do you think is going on? I think it's a combination of just a logistical breakdown and, uh, you know, with certain units who are preparing for a counteroffensive. I mean, the Russians we have seen, you know, like for anyone who has worked in the Russia space, you know, last year when Russia's military and, you know, over the past few decades was put as like the number second, I mean, their military is created by propaganda. And since last February, we have seen the effects of their military and that they can't achieve pretty much any goals. I mean, even in the first days of invasion, uh, the Russian soldiers who were drunk were too busy siphoning gasoline out of the tanks instead of actually, you know, going for their objective at that point, which was Kiev. And so now, I mean, who knows? It's, it's a combination of uh, that. And I mean, Ukraine has reported an increase of, of uh, the hotline where Russian soldiers are calling to basically surrender and surrender their equipment along with themselves. So I think it's just, you know, it's, it's a shit show. And that's all it is. Well, Olga Lapman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Olga Lapman, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who's also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. And she has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe, with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations. And that's available at olgalautman.substack.com. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at the extent to which there is a pro-Putin network in the Pentagon. Now he's helping for destruction. He's a fading confused. And his brain has been mismanaged with great Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Korb, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center for Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense from 1981 to 1985, and is the author of A New National Security Strategy in an Age of Terrorist Tyrants and Weapons of Mass Destruction. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Korb. Nice to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Larry. And what are you hearing from the Pentagon in terms of the origins of these leaks that seem to have gone from the Pentagon to the Russians and then back to 
gaming and social media platforms like Discord here in the United States? Well, basically, what they're looking at is they're assuming it's like when you had Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden. You have a disgruntled government employee, most likely in the Department of Defense, who's not happy with the way the war is going and is trying to change the debate. Is that to say you have a pro-Putin network in the Pentagon? You have a pro-Putin network in the House with the Freedom Caucus and Marjorie Taylor Greene. You have pro-Putin figures in the media like on Fox News with Tucker Carlson. And you have a pro-Putin senator in J.D. Vance who apparently is making inroads amongst his colleagues to cut military aid to Ukraine. Well, I think it's not necessarily pro-Russian, but it's basically against us coming to the aid of Ukraine to the extent that we have, and basically saying that, you know, this is not our problem. Ukraine used to be part of Russia. Don't forget in 2014, when the Russians seized Crimea, which is an integral part of Ukraine, we didn't do anything. Right. But this is a different situation. Russia invaded a sovereign country. Well, again, they also invaded in 2014 and took possession of of Crimea and we didn't do anything. I think the people who did this basically feel that Ukraine should be part of Russia and it's not our business to stop that. And if they took that, that wouldn't change anything. They wouldn't go from there to Poland or, or anything anything like that. This is an internal dispute. After all, there are a lot of people in Ukraine who speak Russian, and it had been part of the Soviet Union for, you know, a very long time. Well, that's those are Putin's talking points. Well, no doubt about it. And, I, and again, I, I'm just guessing here. I think you've got somebody who just feels... <clears throat> that it's not the job of the United States to be the global policeman. And so this is not something we ought to be that heavily involved in. You know, we spent over $100 billion so far there, given all the other, the budget deficit, the budget ceiling coming up, the other demands on our economy, that this is just uh, a, a fruitless endeavor. So what, though, is happening inside the Pentagon to identify this person or persons, or whether it is, in fact, a group of people? We have to assume that a lot of people inside the national security community saw these documents. Were they a a deck for a PowerPoint? They looked like paper copies that were photographed. Right, yeah. yeah. How many people do you think had access to this? Oh, I I would say, you know, basically you probably had several hundred people because you're dealing with something where you're providing economic aid, you're providing military uh, assistance, you're dealing with uh, many, many uh, allies here. And the situation basically, for example, one of the things we know is that the South Koreans did not want the equipment that they were giving to us or selling to us to replace what we sent to Ukraine. They didn't want that to go to Ukraine. So you would have people who focus on, on our, our, our you know, Korean relations or Asia policy, in addition to people focusing on Europe, 
people focusing on the military component. So you probably had hundreds of people there uh, that have had access to those documents. But it only takes one, right, to That's right. All of ship the, them all to of the these, Russians. Sure. I mean, you know, I, you know, as I say, we, we've seen what happened and, you know, with WikiLeaks and Snowden and Manning, you know, so this is not, not the first time that this has happened. So you don't think the Russians have a spy in the Pentagon? You think it's well, I, no, I don't think so. I think it's much more somebody who doesn't like our policy and feels that you know we no longer should be treating Russia like we did in the Cold War. You know, don't forget we had very good relations with Russia up until uh, you know comparatively recently. So. What's then is being done, though, to repair the damage? You, you have to believe that the Ukrainians are just absolutely devastated because they so desperately need U.S. help, and this is well, the worst kind of signal to them. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it, but I think this is a price we pay for living in a democracy with a free press. And, you know, basically... You go back to the Pentagon Papers, that was illegal, uh, and nobody went to jail because they mishandled the uh, prosecution. But the fact of the matter is, that was good to get that out. I mean, you know, when I read it, having been to Vietnam, I thought it, you know, made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Right, but this is not an attempt to expose the shortcomings in a terrible war. This is helping, in effect, an enemy, isn't it? It's helping the Well, technically, uh, technically speaking, it is. And, but as I say, they're looking at this is that, you, I, and I don't agree with them, but that Ukraine is part of, of Russia, has been a lot. Of, if you've ever been to Ukraine, a lot of people there speak Russian. So basically, this is none of our business if Putin wants to, you know, take control of things, you know, just like he did when he first came in with some of the other groups who were not happy with, uh, you know, him trying to reassert, you know, Russia's control over a lot of areas. Well, it certainly got NATO worried, and the U.S. is a major part of NATO, and Putin has really made it clear that he has greater ambitions than just Ukraine. So as far as I can tell, the U.S. foreign policy establishment and the military establishment see this as, an, as a vital war in terms of U.S. national interests. And in, in effect, many have said that this is a good deal for the Pentagon because the Ukrainians are essentially you know, fighting the war for us to degrade oh. Russia as a major well. military opponent. Well, it is, no doubt about it. But whoever leaked this didn't agree with that position. You know, mm -hmm. who they might be and why they did it, we don't, we don't know. But this is not unusual for the way our government operates. And, you know, it is somewhat controversial, as I say, for us to do it. But by and large, the majority of people think we should, but not everybody. And again, as I mentioned, there are people who are concerned we spent over $100 billion so far, you know, in trying to uh, prevent the Russians from taking over Ukraine. 
And other people will argue that we should not have expanded NATO the way that we did. Remember, the late George Kennan, was, who was a father of containment, was against expanding NATO after the end of the Cold War. Well, that's true. I mean, but blaming the eastward expansion of NATO at this point for this brutal and completely unnecessary attack on a country which is being systematically destroyed before our eyes. The person who's doing this and the country that's doing this can hardly uh, be considered a country that you can trust. I mean, Putin is so isolated, according to the leak from a member of his security detail that just came out recently. He's so paranoid and crazy. It's a frightening situation. Now, I No mean, doubt about it. I, I agree with you. But I'm trying to make the point that somebody did not agree with that. And that's why this happened. Right. One person or a group of uh, people. And as I say, there is some arguments to be made on the other side. That, you know, when Bush talked in 2008 about bringing Georgia and Ukraine into NATO, that was something too far for Putin. Because right. NATO is a defensive alliance, but the Russians don't see it that way. And one of the things I learned from my time in government is you got to put yourself in the other person's shoes to see where they're coming from. Doesn't mean you agree with them, but you got to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Right. Well, no, there's no question that NATO expansion eastward was thoughtless and counterproductive and that they didn't take... Russia's security needs into concern, particularly the naval bases on the Black Sea in, in Crimea. But at this point, it's a different world and a different problem. You mentioned the, the $100 billion that have gone so far in aid to Ukraine, military aid mostly. My understanding is that a lot of the stuff that the Pentagon is sending to Ukraine is junk. It's not working. There are no batteries for the Singer missile, Humvees that don't work. Uh, howitzers that leak oil and smoke and are therefore easily detected by the Russians. Is it your understanding that no, the Pentagon I, I, is dumping a lot of stuff that's no, no, you know on them I, so that they can replace it with good stuff for themselves? Is that no, no? I mean, obviously, it's not. Everything is not perfect, but no. And and by and large, most of the aid we're giving is economic. The military aid is only like thirty thirty eight billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And most of it is is economic aid, and we're sending, you know, our our you know our our equipment. And what we're doing then is we're using this money to buy more of that same uh, equipment. I mean, the Abrams battle tanks are some of the best in, in the world. Uh, you know that we've sent the HIMARS system has worked very 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 well. So I, I think occasionally you might end up with some bad equipment, but I think by and large. It's been very good, which is one of the reasons why the Ukrainians have been able to keep the Russians from accomplishing their objectives. So it's not a case of sending old stuff in order to get replaced with new stuff that the Pentagon keeps and the Ukrainians are getting old stuff? No, no. I mean, basically, it's sending what you have now and mm -hmm. then replacing what you have. There's nothing really, I mean, new in the sense of, you know, less old or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that, but it's not the different uh, capabilities. I mean, <clears throat> the Abrams tanks, uh, we're, we're training them. And even though we haven't sent any of the planes yet, 
The fact is the Poles have sent uh, top flight aircraft and we're actually training the pilots right now so that if we do decide to send F-16, the pilots will be ready to go. Right. So is then the Abrams tanks, I understand they're only sending, what, 20 or even Right, less. right. And it's more, basically, we had to do that in order to get the Germans to send the Leopards, which are much better suited to this battle than the Abrams would be. Mm -hmm. and not that the Abrams are not suited, but the Leopards are much better given where you're fighting and the nature of the war. So what do you know that's happening now with the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is going to be using these tanks, and they've been waiting for them and training on them? I mean, they've got to be a little shaken up by these leaks, haven't they? Well, um, obviously, they're not happy with it. But I, I don't think it because they're looking at the equipment they got and their battle plans. And as I say, they might also be happy with the fact that the Russians are downplaying how many casualties they had, which shows that they're, you know, creating a lot more casualties than, uh, than the Russian people are being led to, uh, you know, believe. Well, there's no indications, though, that Putin's losing his grip, even though, it's, as we've yeah. learned, he's living in a kind of paranoid cocoon with all kinds of decoys and afraid that somebody's going to kill him. That hasn't happened yet. No. And well, you know, he could end up like Milosevic in Yugoslavia, where he could be brought before the International Criminal Court if uh, you know, they decide to push him out of power. Well, uh, I don't know whether there are any indications of that, but that would be a, a good way to end this uh, horrible yeah. war. But So just in closing then, Lawrence Corb, you think that the U.S. is still in for the long haul here, that in spite of the J.D. Vances and the Margie Taylor Greens and the Tucker oh, Carlson's... Yeah. Very, uh, very, very definitely. The establishment Republican Party and the Democrat support, support this. You're never going to have 100% in anything we do. But no, we're in there for the long haul. And if anything, I think this will stiffen our resolve to keep it going. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Okay, good to uh, be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Corb, who's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center for Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense from 1981 to 1985, and he's the author of a new national security strategy in an age of terrorists, tyrants, and weapons of mass destruction. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into what it will take to censure, if not impeach, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lisa Tucker, a professor of law at Drexel University's Klein School of Law, an expert on the United States Supreme Court. She's a columnist at SCOTUS blog and the author of numerous biographies about Supreme Court justices and prominent elected officials. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Tucker. Thank you so much. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And we spoke a couple of years back when you had an article at CNN, just how far will Clarence Thomas go? So yeah. now we've learned from a ProPublica investigation of his lavish trips he's taken with a billionaire friend of his, along with his wife, of course. Yeah. I mean, how much more do you think he's been pushing the envelope here? Well, I think what's really interesting about Clarence Thomas is that there are two different narratives around Justice Thomas. And one of them is that many people seem to think he's just not very smart. And he's always protested against that view of him. And I have to agree with him on this point. He is actually an extremely smart, brilliant man. And he's very personable. Um, a lot of people around the court say he's their favorite person in the building. On the other hand, I don't know how you really reconcile his own uh, vision of himself as a really smart guy, which I agree he is, and this idea that somehow he couldn't figure out that it wasn't okay to take these trips and all these other perks and boondoggles that he was being given. He's sort of playing now the, oh, gosh, never thought of that. And, and frankly, that's really impossible. He... Um, has been a federal judge for well over 30 years. He was on the D.C. Circuit before he became a Supreme Court justice. And even though the Supreme Court is not bound by the same rules of ethics that lower court federal judges are, still, there's no doubt that this is in conversation at the court all the time, that uh, certainly other people would be approaching him all the time and, and wanting to influence him, whether overtly or covertly. So what really bothers me about it is is two things. Number one is the appearance of impropriety. And that's something that all lawyers and judges try to avoid. We want to make it look like we are absolutely neutral in our advocacy and our decision making and so forth. And so the appearance of impropriety is just as important as actual impropriety itself. It seems to me that what Justice Thomas is arguing, and those who say this is okay, is that there wasn't anything actually wrong. They weren't actually influencing him, and so there's no problem. But when the public looks at the Supreme Court, we want the public to have trust in it, think that the court is legitimate. And so if Clarence Thomas is taking these kinds of very, very, you know, she-she trips and gifts, then the public can lose confidence in the court even more than it already has. Well, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he's called for instituting a binding code of ethics for uh, judges on the Supreme Court, and he urged the Chief Justice John Roberts to launch an investigation into Thomas's trips. Just to quote him for a second, this cries out for the kind of independent investigation that the Supreme Court and only the Supreme Court across the entire government refuses to perform. That in itself is pretty extraordinary, isn't it, that they've exempted themselves? Well, yes. And, um, you know, certainly Congress has been trying for years to influence the Supreme Court to adopt the same code of ethics that judges um, are required to adhere to. Um, it's never happened yet. And right now, I think John Roberts is really between a rock and a hard place because, sure, he can do an investigation here, but he doesn't have any power whatsoever to ask Clarence Thomas to step down, to impeach him, to do anything. All he can do is sort of take him aside and say, 
gosh, colleague of mine, this really doesn't look so good. And we know that those conversations and those uh, criticisms have been happening, if not between the chief and Justice Thomas, with lots of people in the public and lots of experts over the years, because Clarence Thomas's wife has been involved in things and so on. And so, you know, I can see the desire to adopt this code of ethics. I think it's going to be really hard to make it happen. I can see the chief wanting to do something. But if the chief did approach Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas could just say, sorry, there isn't anything you could do to me. And I don't think the chief is likely to want to put himself in that position. It makes him look like he's really powerless over his own court. But that's been a suspicion that some have aired, some Supreme Court watchers, that the real leaders of this conservative or ultra-conservative bloc, depending upon how you see them, is Thomas and a leader, and that, uh, in a way, the Chief Justice doesn't have the power that his office would normally suggest? Well, I think the word suggest is the most important word there, Ian. Um, even though he's called the Chief Justice, he's also called first among equals. And what that means is that all of the justices have the same amount of power. They each have one vote. They each, you know... Um, get to make decisions on their own. Many people compare the nine chambers of the nine justices to nine mini law firms that are operating completely independently. So I agree with you that the name chief sounds like he'd have more power. Really, it's just sort of an administrative role. He keeps the trains running on time. And he also does things with the other federal courts. But in terms of sanctioning the other justices or telling the other justices what to do, he can't do that. Well, what do you think happened, though, with the leak of the Dobbs decision? Because what I'm reading from other law experts and others that have followed it is that it looks as if either Thomas and Alita, or Alita or both leaked the document, uh, the, the earlier draft of the Dobbs decision, in order to shut down negotiations that were going on between the Chief Justice John Roberts and the possible swing vote of Kavanaugh, who apparently, according to these reports, that Chief Justice Roberts was trying to convince Kavanaugh to join him on a on a less radical vote, uh, not to outlaw abortion altogether, but to, just to deal with the Mississippi cases, not to make it a national case. So what do you take away from that? I mean, first of all, do you think it's true? Well... This is certainly the question of the year. And last year when this happened, I happened to be in Rome. And so it was the middle of the night in Rome when this came down at about 9 p.m. At the U in the U.S. And my phone is lighting up and people are going crazy. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? We are never going to know what actually happened there. I think that's as good a theory as any that the conservatives leaked it in order to keep their majority to overrule Roe. But the Supreme Court is a very secretive institution, and they really demand secrecy and loyalty. So the fact that it leaked at all is kind of extraordinary. I don't know what happened there. The only thing that I can be fairly sure of, uh, just as a, as a longtime court observer and scholar, is that this isn't the last time we're going to see that ultra-conservative end of the court overruling precedent and precedent that really matters to the American public. But what would the tactic have been? In other words, if this was done by 
either Clarence Thomas or Sam Alito. What's the tactic there? Would it have been to stop the negotiations between Kavanaugh and Roberts? Or I'm just trying to get an understanding about what they expected the leak to achieve. Right. Well, if I were in, you know, if I put myself in their shoes and I had thought of this strategy, and I should be very, very clear that I was not and I did not. Um, But to me, what makes the most sense is that there had been a vote early on in Dobbs to overrule Roe, or that there had been a vote that some people said, yes, I definitely want to overrule Roe, and that a couple of others, maybe the chief in Kavanaugh, had said, no, we can do this in in a narrower way. So if, um, you know, we have the Federalist Society, we have Leonard Leo, who has really been supportive of getting these justices on the court, and the conservative movement really holds them up as their figureheads, as people who, you know, look at what a great job we're doing in the conservative movement in the United States. We've got these amazing conservative justices as kind of their, their way of speaking, Right. So no one, not the chief, not Kavanaugh, not nobody wants to lose that admiration, respect, support of the leading conservative leaders in this country. And so my thinking is that Thomas and Alito, if it was them, and and I should be really clear, nobody knows. I mean, I don't think the chief knows. Nobody seems to know. If they did leak this, it would be, you know, now this public thing is out there that Dobbs is being overruled. And now Roberts and Kavanaugh, again, if if they were still wobbling, would have to say, no, we don't want to do that. And that's something that would have gotten them in a lot of hot water with the 50 percent of conservatives, the 50 percent of the American public that identifies as conservative. So maybe they thought it's easier to do this. We'll know that they'll it'll be so hard for them to be defectors. And this is the way to cement it in stone. And, and one thing that really struck me, Ian, was, you know, we got that, um, that leaked opinion in early May. It had apparently been written in February. A couple of days later, um, Alito, uh, excuse me, the chief justice confirmed that it was authentic. And so what we had was a situation in which um, – there was still time to go back and revise that opinion. And for many, uh, we saw Alito acting kind of, it read very hostile to many of us. And so, you know, in the couple of months before the opinion actually came down, there would have been time to temper it a little bit, maybe to try to um, woo the chief and Kavanaugh into feeling a little bit better about how it sounded. And it appears that didn't happen either, because when the actual released opinion came down, it was extraordinarily similar to the leaked one we'd seen back in February. So to me, what this says is whoever leaked this did it as a way of saying, we're playing hardball and you're either with us or you're against us. So you mentioned Leonard Leo. And of course, this one man has had an extraordinary role in shaping the federal judiciary and and the Supreme Court. And that in itself is amazing that one man should have that influence. Mm. I mentioned uh, Senator Whitehouse earlier. He, in the context of calling for the Supreme Court to have have an independent investigation and, and have an uh, ethics regime, he mentions Leonard Leo, and he said, Leonard Leo and other right-wing fixers should know 
they don't just have business before the court, their business is the court. So Mm -hmm. Leonard Leo shows up in a painting at Harlan Crow. He's the billionaire that gave all these perks to the Thomases. There's a painting of him and Thomas and Harlan Crow at their Adirondacks retreat. Yep. And there's also reports from USA Today and others who have visited Harlan Crow's estate in Dallas that the place is full of Nazi memorabilia. And also Harlan Crow's prized possession apparently is a painting by Adolf Hitler himself along with a signed copy of Mein Kampf all kinds of Nazi memorabilia, and then in the vast sort of backyard, if you will, of this estate, there are statues statues of all, all these horrible dictators like mm. Hitler. So Harlan Crow claims that they represent his passion against fascism, but most people that go there apparently find it really creepy and think it's almost like an homage to these uh, mass murderers. So... I mean, we know that along with uh, Leonard Leo, and I suppose to some extent Clarence Thomas, Harlan Crow is is an extremely conservative Catholic, maybe Opus Dei, it's hard to know because it's a secretive organization, but that's always been the rumor about Leonard Leo. So I guess my question is, isn't this an extraordinary case of a minority within a minority? I mean, even within the Catholic faith itself, that extreme uh, version of Catholicism, the Opus Dei type of Catholicism, is a minority. So you don't have in the Supreme Court itself a diversity of religion, do you? I mean, I know people aren't supposed to talk about religion, and here we are, you know, on the Easter Sunday talking about it. Is that something to be concerned about, the lack of Of diversity? Of course. We always want the people who are making law, whether they be legislators or judges, to represent America and represent American thought and uh, to, to have nuanced, opened mi- open minds. And right now, the court does not look like that. The court looks like a very small segment of society. And of course, with Katanji Brown-Jackson being appointed to the court, Uh, It's been so celebrated because here was a a person who looked like so many Americans and had had a journey that reflected that of so many Americans. But it's going to take a while before this court is more diverse in many, many ways. And very conservative religion is really problematic because those are First Amendment issues that come before the court all the time. And if people like John Roberts, Sam Alito, Amy Coney Barrett Barrett cannot be neutral because of their profound religious beliefs, this is something of concern. Well, it's more than them, though. Isn't it almost five or six of them are conservative Catholics? I think Gorsuch is... Yeah, I think he is, and uh, Sotomayor, but I don't think that Sotomayor is in the same vein of Catholicism. Justice Kagan is Jewish. Justice Jackson is Protestant, but certainly, you know, we don't have a wide range of religious views that take into account uh, modern society, shall we say. Right. So Thomas, Alito, Roberts, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett, that's six, are conservative Yeah, I'm not sure if Gorsuch is Catholic or not. Yeah, um, he's pa- definitely he's definitely some Christian faith, but I'm not sure which which Christian faith he is. Right. 
Well, that, that in itself, I mean, the, just the numbers speak for themselves. So sure. just in closing then, Lisa Tucker, it's not just the lack of diversity in terms of, uh, of religious belief on the Supreme Court. It's also this particular Supreme Court, particularly Clarence Thomas, seems to have pretty intimate ties with very wealthy people like Harlan Crow. Harlan Crow actually financed a documentary about Clarence Thomas in which Thomas says that his real pleasure he gets is mm. uh, hanging out in Walmart parking lots and that he's a man of the people. You know, and he comes from ordinary stock, I think is how he described it. But if mm-hmm. you're hanging out with billionaires and flying around in private jets and taking luxury vacations, that makes you question how much of a man of the people Clarence Thomas is. Well, at my understanding, and uh, I have to, you'll have to forgive me if I have this wrong, but my understanding is also that they were, Clarence Thomas has described them as dear friends, I think. But my understanding is that they were not dear friends before Clarence Thomas went on the court. So for 25 years or so, they have been very close friends, but Thomas has been on the court for more than 30. And so, you know, for example, and I should I should disclose this in the interest of, you know, full disclosure, Katanji Brown-Jackson has been a close friend of mine uh, for 20 years, but that was long, long before she went on the court. So if she were come, to come and visit me and I were to take her out to dinner, to me, that's a very different situation, isn't it? First of all, I'm very, very, very far from a billionaire with influence. But second of all, a pre-existing relationship is very different to one that was um, formed after someone went on the court and had extreme influence. So to me, it doesn't even really matter how close of friends they are now. What matters is that this friendship arose after Thomas was already on the court, after Thomas already had power, and in the context of all of these other people, Leonard Leo uh, being one, who have uh, you know, been courting Thomas and, and really, really uh, wooing him, it's hard to imagine why they would want to do that if he weren't in this position of power. Well, Lisa Tucker, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Tucker, who's a professor of law at Drexel University's Klein School of Law, an expert on the United States Supreme Court. She's a columnist at SCOTUS blog and the author of numerous biographies about Supreme Court justices and prominent elected officials. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.